Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of Saves the Day. The first time I really became aware of Saves the Day was when, for some reason, we headlined their record release party for their second album, Through Being Cool, at the Elks Lodge in Mansville, New Jersey, sometime in the fall of 1999. You could tell that this was more than just another Jersey band. I spoke to the one and only Chris Conley about this time. By the way, the other voice you'll hear in this episode is the producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon, who also worked with Saves the Day. Oh, one other thing. Full disclosure, Conley has been at the center of some controversy in the recent months, and we'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention it. However, this interview was recorded in March of 2021, well before said controversy came to light, and it's not something that we discussed in this interview. So take that for what it's worth, and hopefully you can still enjoy the conversation. So here's Chris. So going back, when did you guys first start talking to Vagrant and start... Did you start... Working with Rich first or signed to the label first? We signed to the label first. And the first time we ever heard about Vagrant Records was actually during the Get Up Kids set at Crazy Fest in, I think, uh, 99. Because you guys were playing uh, songs from something to write home about, but they weren't out yet. And, uh, you know, you hadn't made the album yet. But the songs, or maybe you had already recorded it, and you were like, we're going to be... We're si- we just signed a Vagrant Records, and none of us had ever heard of Vagrant. But immediately, we were <laughs> excited about the label because the almighty Get Up Kids had signed to them. And so <laughs> that's the real truth right there. We were like, wow, what is Vagrant Records? So we got started to get excited about Vagrant Records. And uh, at the time, we were getting like all the the interest from major labels and indie labels. But the first contact from Vagrant was the day that our album Through Being Cool came out, November 2nd, 1999. I came home and on my answering machine, which was a thing we used to have back then, I love the time. was this, this guy, Kevin Kasatsu. Uh-huh. And uh, he's like, hey, I work for Vagrant Records. Uh, we love your new album and uh, we would love to meet you guys. So we were psyched. My first takeaway from that is why on earth we would announce what record label we had signed to. <laughs> it was like, it was a big and, and, thing back then. And why, and why we would like play up that we we're, hey, we're signing to this no name indie label that no one's ever heard of. Well, I think that the only thing anybody knew about it at that moment was that Rich and Face to Face were somehow involved, you know? Like, right. The guy that manages face to face is somehow part of this label. He owns the label or something we didn't know. But I, I, we, I was such a big fan of face to face back then that that was also exciting. Yeah, same. So was- yeah, it, it could have been that. Like, and also the just the whole California connection for bands from the Midwest and the East Coast. There's something surreal about being on this label from in, in from LA. I don't know if that was that was it, but I remember the first time we ever went out to meet them. It was a very California experience. They're all, you know, white t-shirts and sunglasses, bottles of water. <laughs> right. With bottles of water was like a weird... Yeah, that was like, like, West like Coast. damn, these guys like carry water around. It's like, um, com- it's like kombucha <laughs> now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or coconut water. Yeah. So Kevin just cold called you. Yeah, like so, and it was I was living at my mom's house because I was like in college, and I would I was living on the weekends. I would come back to Princeton, but it, I don't know why I was home. Or no, no, you know what? We had recorded through being cool already, and this was the would have been the fall semester of uh, sophomore year at NYU, but the album had turned out really cool. So Brian Newman and I decided to defer for a year. So I had we had stopped going to NYU at this point. So I was just like home on a Tuesday. Remember records used to come out on Tuesday. And I got back I got back to uh, the house and checked the answering machine. There was Kevin on there. And then, you know, over the years becoming good friends with him and having so much fun with him. It's so wild to look back on that moment. And there's Kevin's voice on the answering machine, but we were psyched because seriously, because you guys had signed to Vagrant, we were super interested in them. And we weren't interested in the other labels. There, there were a lot of a lot of the major labels were coming at bands from the scene pretty hard. You know, and like a little bit of the whining and the dining was starting to happen. But we were still just these young like punk rock kids and it was all very see-through. And you know, they a label says you're gonna be the next Blink 182. And we're like, I don't I don't even really like <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really sure that's my vibe. But Vagrant, but Vagrant was so cool because they were just like West Coast punk rockers. Right. You know, it fit. Like the the feeling was not far off from our family at Equal Vision that and that home that we it just it felt like a home, a home away from home. So that was after after Through Being Cool came out? Yeah, it was on the day that Through Being Cool came out. We got the call from Kevin. And so we're we're like, yeah, we're moving on up. but not all the other labels it really didn't it just left a weird taste in our mouth so even though the opportunities were there we're like well we're really happy on equal vision and we love them and we're we feel so lucky to get to be on equal vision but there was something with vagrant that there was a kinship there's some the spirit there was the same and so it felt comfortable and since like i swear it since you guys signed to Vagrant, it was like, damn, this must be the move. Because <laughs> we were just kids, like we had no idea what was going on, and it was very exciting to just be on a label back then. So, when you make the decision to to sign to Vagrant, like, did was were you still under contract with Equal Vision, and and or were they bummed about it or mad? Yeah. About- I think they were bummed. I don't. I hope there wasn't any like bad feeling. I hope there wasn't no one was mad but it did just kind of make sense like saves the day was really blowing up and that whole scene was really blowing up and when when we start when we first signed to equal vision that whole like melodic sort of pop rock that emo became like hadn't started really to be this wave of all these bands that were coming out of like every small town in America. Um, and you guys were like one of the first first bands that sounded like that, but that was in the the, un- the world of underground music. Because back then, remember, there was all the like super heavy bands with like screaming, right. or yell- yelling vocalists and kind of metal guitar riffs and stuff, dual rectifier amplifiers and stuff. Um, and so that pop rock thing was only just starting. We didn't really fit in that well in the scene at the at the time. Went like 1997, you know, 98. And then... Um, Especially on the East Coast, too. 
Like, yeah, there's a lot of aggro, you know? Yeah. Cause when you guys came out, there was your, that whole, that whole like gang of bands, like you guys had this whole scene and there was very little of that post hardcore feeling. Mm-hmm. Like it was very much like Weezer inspired and we loved that too, but that was not the sound in the underground music at all. We were coming from a more like indie rock. I mean, Weezer obviously, but like a, a more of a, just like being into like Archers of the Loaf and Super Chunk and stuff. Yeah. Like- see, that's, that's why I loved you guys too. Cause I loved Archers of Loaf and Super Chunk. Those were my two favorite bands Two of my favorite bands, ninth grade, high school. Um, and I, f- I actually found out about Get Up Kids in, do you remember Very Distribution? It was this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The yeah. best. It was this awesome catalog where you could send away for seven inches. And they really like took a lot of care to, to write up these little reviews. So I read about this band, The Get Up Kids, and it says, Sounds like Sunny Day Real Estate and Super Chunk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I was like, I was like, that's for me. So I I got the first. Get Up Kids seven inch through very distribution and I loved it. That one and the initial records catalog was one. Oh yeah, about, like describing and it's kind of reductive when you really think about it. I'm just being like, uh, this band sounds like this band and this band and. and <laughs> oh, dude, I still think like that though. Like I'll you know any music that I hear, I'm like, oh, this is they're doing the Clash. <laughs> yeah, no, and I. I I do too, but just like it's my you know ultimate criticism of of like right, right, right. The music creators, just- oh god, I love it. Let's let's hear the critics start their bands, and let's <laughs> <laughs> we could be the critics now. I can't wait. <laughs> You'll feel too bad about it. You'll just be like, oh, no, they did a good. Job. I don't know, man. <laughs> I oh, a lot- what you say? A lot of-, of spite stored up. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> Or is he? Yeah. Kidding, not kidding. I don't know what your deal was with Equal Vision, but you you didn't have to get like bought out or anything to go. To oh, right. No. So we did actually. We were still under contract with with EVR. They, I, Rich, I don't know how Rich went about it. Right. So there was no, there were no hard feelings, but it was sort of like the the next logical step for us. And Vagrant felt like home. So Equal Vision was willing to like let us you know, move, move on. And, and, you know, for us, it was like the, with that option of doing the major thing that felt like so far from, that was such a big leap and we didn't feel comfortable with any of those labels, but we expressed to equal vision that Vagrant really felt right. You know, and there was, there was, it just made sense. So they were, I don't know how that all worked like legally mm-hmm. and what the buyout or whatever was, but it couldn't have been too crazy. Cause even though like through being cool was blowing up, it's not like we weren't doing like get up kids numbers, you know, like <laughs> so amazing when rich came into the, into the picture. Cause he really did have experience that nobody else from our world of punk rock or the underground world. And then all of a sudden all these bands are on tour and tour buses and, Getting taken out by Weezer and playing at amphitheaters and stuff. It was that was exponential. It was wild. It's kind of like Kevin had this like fantastic ear and obviously still does and was so like ambitious. And then Rich kind of almost brings like a level of professionalism to it that like we were just like, oh, you can do that. Okay, (laughs) sure. Oh, God. Yeah. That that was rock and roll daydream. It's interesting though because like because I remember you guys coming on board, and I guess maybe it, it was a little bit more normalized than to go from one indie label to another indie label. Because like when we left Doghouse, it was like at least internally, it was like a scandal. You yeah, know death I mean? death threats. It wasn't death threats. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it was, that was kind of the, the the vibe back then. I remember people talking shit about you guys being on a tour bus too. I remember that. It's such a it's such a funny thing to reflect about these small minded, narrow minded <laughs> critics, you know. But just fans. Okay, well, this being, is being being bullied by your fans. This is an academic discussion uh, that I don't know, Jesse. Maybe every time I bring up something like this, you say you've already written about it in a book, but like. <laughs> the, there's so many fucking rules to punk rock that I don't think people necessarily care about as much anymore, but I wonder how many of them come from minor threat. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Because they were, yeah. they were so absolute about everything. You know what I guess? It's just like no drugs, no, can't make any money off of it. You know, like it's just, yeah. Right. No, that's true. That's true. And that's, I mean, that's the whole, uh, tongue-in-cheek sentiment of Boxcar, that Jawbreaker song that we yeah, covered right. on the Where's oh, the Band. Totally, totally. Who's punk? What's the score? He, I feel like he just nailed it. The, re- the the reaction to all that. There's some story about who screwed you playing with Minor Threat, and Bob Mould, who was drunk at the time, just goes up to Ian Mc- McKay and goes, "Straight Edge is stupid." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh, best punk rock story ever. <laughs> so, okay. So tell me what's going on when you guys, cause you're like, you're basically touring on through being cool and you signed a vagrant, you go through that whole thing. We didn't touch on this with Chris, but saves also released a B sides record called ups and downs. It was produced by Steve Evitz, who also produced the band's first two albums. Here's Steve. So when is the, the B sides record when is the B sides record? That's uh, I, I think they re- I was reading rele- the Wikipedia. I believe they released that after "Stay What You Are." So it's in between "Stay What You Are" and, and, and in, in Reverie. Reverie. Yeah, okay. I think it's a, even the even like the cover. If you look at it, the fonts are the same. The ups and downs. I think the font is the same as the "Stay What You Are," like the "Saves the Day" logo and everything. It's like it's all in that same time frame. So was all of that stuff all stuff that you had recorded? Uh. The the majority of it because the 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 B sides record was the, the all the whole Seffler all the Seffler demos so that was you know the original thing and also the two songs that were originally on the the Vagrant Comp the Dragon D Flat Sell My Old Clothes were on that as well so and then this other things are just like I think um, I think it's the I don't know if it's the Sorry I'm Leaving stuff is on there or not I think it might be if I remember right the the thing that Chris recorded himself in his in his basement uh the acoustic ep it's on that so okay so that's i think that's the majority of the whole thing is like the bulk of it is the stuff that they did with me and then the uh, the other the acoustic demos the band decided to make their third record with legendary producer rob schnaff who we talked about in the anniversary episode of this podcast did you make stay what you are with schnaff yes we okay. were we were trying to line up dates with uh steve evitz um, to just, we were going to make our third album in a row with Steve, but he was in Rio de Janeiro with, with, uh, Sepultura. <laughs> he was like somewhere, he was like globetrotting, making records. Yeah. And then he had, I think he had hate breed right after that. So he was going to be busy for like six months straight. And we were like itching to make the album. So Rich and everybody at Vagrant had all these producers lined up to for us as options. And that was really thrilling. But for me, I didn't want to leave 
working with Steve because it was just so comfortable and we had so much fun making records together and I just felt like he understood me as a songwriter and as an artist so it was that was I was pretty nervous about working with someone else but um you know Rich was one of the guys who was like look Rob Schnaff you know, worked with, he's work, works with Elliot Smith, who you love. You know, he found Beck like on the side of the road, <laughs> like literally he's, uh, he's got, he's got a great, just have a conversation with him. He's got a great sense for like rock and roll and what it can be. And Rob, Rob and I bonded over the fact that our two favorite bands growing up were Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin. And at the time I remember feeling pretty embarrassed that I loved Aer- Aerosmith so much. And then I felt so validated that <laughs> Rob, Rob grew up loving Aerosmith. <laughs> Like, really? Aerosmith? He's like, yeah, back in the 70s, like Aerosmith and Led Zeppelin were doing the coolest stuff on guitar. So anyway, the first time we met Rob was really funny. We went to New York City to some like like high rise, like uh office building. I forget where where we were. It might have been his his management company's building. But it was the day after he had gone to a guided by voices show. And Guided by Voices, he had just produced uh, Guided by Voices album, Isolation Drills, or maybe he was going to or something, but he was pals with them. And those guys, have you ever seen Guided by Voices show, you guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, like they drink, they drank like 10,000 beers. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't say I've seen a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I don't even know if they've they can remember seeing a show because they get so blitzed. But Rob, w- Rob, like it was a really early morning meeting. It was probably like nine in the morning or something. He came in with his sunglasses on. <laughs> and like, oh, yeah, not- I, and and I thought that he hated us. Like he was. He- he had hardly anything to say and he was just this grumpy dude but when he tells it now he's like i was so hungover <laughs> <laughs> it was like don't want to schedule a morning meeting i know <laughs> the lights the lights and the like blinding fluorescent lights were just you know just made his vision blurry and um he was just like he was probably still drunk and so anyway that's the first time we met rob and we did not think the meeting went well but then he called and he's like all right send me send me the songs i want to hear the songs." so then once we started to connect on the uh, on the album that became a life-changing experience for me he's like definitely someone i've learned the most about music from and with is exhilarating. He's really on the side of the artist. And back in the day, he had to do, he had to work with a lot of major labels and he was like such a punk about it. He hated working with the suits and he really just loves making records and he's really, really friggin' smart. And so like for me as a songwriter, I had only been playing guitar for like, I don't know, not, not that long. Like I was, had only been playing guitar for about four years when Saves the Day started and this was our third album. So he could, he could see that I was like really reaching for things on the guitar that I didn't fully understand. Like I never, I taught myself and he, it was incredible. He's like, you see how you're like stretching for those notes on that, in that verse. Like if you, if you finger the guitar like this, look, that note is also on this, you know, the string right above it. And, but you could bar the, you know, you could bar your finger across the fifth fret and hit all those notes at once and more. And it was just like a light bulb moment making that record with him. It was, it was so cool. So you made the record in LA. Did you guys all, where did you guys stay yeah, so that's a fun story. Rich found us this apartment um, right off Sunset Boulevard, and it was Gerard Butler's 
apart apartment. And he was, yeah, he was in Australia filming like Dracula or something. So he was gone. He was gone for like the whole year. So he was subletting and it was Gerard Butler's ha- uh, apartment. And it was um, two bedrooms. Was and there full were, of like workout equipment or, or something, you know, like. Just- um, no, no, there, there was, it was before he was becoming like that, like action star, oh, okay. but you'd open, like if you open a drawer to find like scissors or something, there's like a picture of Gerard Butler and Renee Zellweger, you know, just hanging out. But we were super young, like 20, 20 years old. I think I turned 21, maybe out there making the album or something like that. Um, but we didn't get the security deposit back for that. <laughs> we just fucking destroyed the, I mean, I didn't, I was, you know, I'm no angel, but I was raised not to throw spaghetti at the wall. And there was like dried spaghetti just stuck to the wall in the kitchen because David and Eben were, I think there's a little alcohol starting yeah, to I creep. I was going to say, this is still when, when Eben was still in the band. So I imagine. Oh, yeah. There was, some, <laughs> there was just hijinks. And there was like, yeah, there was definitely alcohol and other fun things starting to make their way into our world. And, uh, you know, like Brian Newman, the only other original member, and I, we grew up going to those straight edge shows, you know, but we were definitely more on the Bob Mould side of that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Recording in LA is a unique experience. You never know what kind of stories the studio or even the city are going to tell you. Oh, lots of, lots of fun stories. One just funny tidbit was we recorded some of the album at this studio, Sonora. Yeah. And yeah. And it was the week after the Backstreet Boys had been in there. (laughs) And and the guy had this crazy story about how, I don't know if I get in trouble saying this, but this is how it went down. And he was like, yeah. So like the day before the Backstreet Boys got in there, they had this other, these five singers come in and track all the parts. And then the next day, the Backstreet Boys just like sung on top of those parts. So they like learned the parts that the the other five singers had done. And then they just, they did that. And then they took out the other singers. So, okay. Making the record, you're at Gerard Butler's place. Right. So, and we were, we were recording most of the album at Sunset Sound, which was amazing. Oh, wow. So, yeah, like that was just so cool to be in there. Like, I get goosebumps thinking about it. That was the, our first time in like a really serious studio with like a studio compound. And, and then we, every once in a while, we had to go to the B room. And that was where Prince famously made all his records before building Paisley Park. Oh. So that was the, and I swear to God, that room had like spirits in it. <laughs> Cause, <laughs> yeah. Cause like weird, yeah, like weird shit would happen in there. Uh, like to the electricity and, and like, I, I was just like, okay, so there's spirits here. Like <laughs> this is, this is not, this is really happening. Is that one that Dave Grohl owns the board from? No, that's, um, that's sound city. Sound city. Okay. Yeah. And it's such a cool, like old lodge kind of, it's like wood panels everywhere. Um, but, and just making the record with, with Rob was just so cool because he, he just brought like a whole level of musicality that was, I was really just connected with him. And it was a lot like working with Steve because Steve will make like a heavy metal record. And then you talk to him and his favorite bands, the Beatles. And he like, 
knows about harmonies and extra instrumentation and he's he really knows his shit and so for me it was like getting to work with rob schnaff was like i was i really felt like a kid in a candy store every single day it was just just a dream come true and he really helped me grow as a guitar player and feel confident in as a songwriter and i was already working on a bunch of stuff for in reverie which was a lot more in the like elliot smith range of songwriting and Rob instantly connected with that and he'd say, like, that reminds me of Elliot. And that was like really just cool to hear. I didn't, you know, I didn't know that you're, you know, in a couple of years when that album came out, it'd be a tough, tough moment. But leading up to its release was just glorious. <laughs> leading leading up to its release was just glorious, like life-changing experiences, learning about music and growing as a songwriter. We had so much fun in LA. The other guys were definitely more like drinkers. So and I was I don't think, I think I turned 21 when I was there, like I said, but I didn't, I wasn't like a bar guy, but those guys definitely were like going out and having, having lots of fun going to the, I think it's called the roost, which is over near Sonora, like right around the corner. So that was kind of dangerous. (laughs) And I feel like our, our friends in Midtown were out there as well. And it was like definitely becoming like uh, a lot of the bands from our world of music were starting to realize that they could be, you know, like living this rock and roll dream. So yeah. there, was a, there was a lot of hijinks. I think it was also because... Emphasis mean, on the high. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is kind of interesting like that time because like it was, everything was happening so fast and it was all like this kind of environment where it wasn't like, it wasn't like debaucherous in like a glam metal sort of way. Like it was just sort of like, oh, we can just drink all day and yeah it was just like this is an option now and yeah uh, yeah it wasn't like expected or anything and if anything i think a lot of people didn't really know about that but it it is it did get a little because you're so young and you've got money and you've got free time and yeah it's the it's the free time i remember realizing like oh that's why they throw their tv out of the hotel because they have like so much you just it's mind-numbing like the amount yeah it literally just you just feel this numb just dull it you and all the energy that is just building up in you just as a young person but then this it's very exciting you know you just being in LA was a thrill um but you know i was like i was such a i was such a nerdy like musician kid at that point and really just like hanging out stoned with my guitar you know like that was my whole thing this is what 2000 2001 well yeah 2000 i wrote most of the album in 2000 and then right when we went out for pre-production with rob i wrote two songs as soon as we got to la um i wrote one of them actually in vagrant at the vagrant offices in What's one that? of the like in the uh, it's called cars and calories yeah and uh and then a song the next song on the album is called certain tragedy and those two songs to me like feel like california so it's the first time first time in saves the day like that the songs don't feel like they're written in new york and new jersey like those songs have like sunshine in them i could and, totally yeah i could totally see that that actually makes a lot of sense yeah and there would have been two two different songs on the album but like all of a sudden it felt like sunshine and beach boys harmonies and <laughs> <laughs> the way it was like sleeping in that apartment was really cool because the road was like right outside my window where i would sleep and all the cars driving by sounded like waves crashing on the beach like that Tom Petty song. Um, and so I felt like I was sleeping on, by the ocean. And so it was just, it was a cool, it was just such a cool, cool experience. And it was like, it was early in 2001 when we were out there. It was early 2001. 
I think it was like, I think it was January and February. Um, but it was so, it was like summertime. Whereas like in back East, it would have been, we came from the winter. And then, um, so that was kind of glorious. Like all the grass was the greenest grass I've ever, I still swear they paint that grass. <laughs> so was, uh, did Kevin come around much? Oh yeah. Kevin, Kevin hung out a bunch. Um, he actually like, him like really hanging, hanging out with you guys a lot. Like I feel like, yeah, we were super close and we had so much fun together just goofing off. And, um, there was one time where we got these really good mushrooms from our, um, sound engineer, Doug Bame. And I had never tried that before. We were hanging out. Kevin used to do a lot of that stuff growing up, but he's not, he's not like that anymore. But it's like all the other guys in the band had like done that a bunch. And so I like ate as much as they did. <laughs> that was like a really bad idea. So I was starting to like freak out. And Kevin was like, what's wrong, dude? Because he had had experience doing it. He like guided me back to safety. <laughs> you know, like so I felt that was like a really crucial moment where I could have gone way off the deep end and into the darkness and Kevin Kasatsu saved me. Your mushroom Sherpa. Yeah, he was my mushroom <laughs> Sherpa. <laughs> and then the next day I, we made the trippiest sounding music because <laughs> I was still kind of feeling it. We did this um this there's this intro on our song called Nightingale. It's all this like backwards sounding kind of underwater dreamy sound music <laughs> like i made that and like it just sounded so cool it's good times man <laughs> <laughs> so that okay when does that record come out 2001 2001 yeah july 10th 2001 then, so it's like two months before september 11th but like you guys were in the vagrant tour at that point Right. Yeah, yeah, we ca it came out on that tour, and we were headlining that tour, except for in Chicago when you guys joined up, and um, that was just an incredible tour. That was, and then, uh, and all of us, we were all like dashboard and and the anniversary, and everybody's on the these tour buses, like parading around the country together. Well, was, I mean, I, I actually kind of, I don't, I don't, I don't regret because I try, I try not to live with regret just for my own mental health. But like the more we talk about that particular tour and that particular time and the camaraderie between everybody, like yeah, we were, we were all friends with everybody. And like when we rolled into Chicago, it was just kind of like, it, it was like we had been there the whole time. It was, it was. It, uh, and but it sounds like that we really, cause like, of course Egan wanted us on that tour, like the whole time. And it was just like, we were just like, no, we're done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, it would have been, it would have been awesome. Those four nights though, we, we really squeezed a, a lot of rock and roll into those yeah, four we did nights. a lot of living we did a lot of living <laughs> yeah. that would that those it was basically uh, each day was a week so that was like a month on the road i remember because you and i have talked about this and like I, I think that like that camaraderie was a little bit not lost on us but like we didn't take it to heart as much as we maybe should have in hindsight because we were kind of like well what's all this new shit you know like i like these guys they're all my friends and stuff but like it's still like taking attention away from what we were doing you know what i mean like and uh but it was never like with any of the people in the bands at all it was always just like you guys were like our, our drinking buddies although i will say that that time in chicago was when i just really cemented you in my mind as a stoner <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh yeah, Conley, he's that stoner from Saves the Day. Yeah. <laughs> because you said something to me about how you just wait for the songs to appear. Oh God, you, yeah. You like pluck them out of the air or something like that. Yeah. I, I was nursing a beer and I was like, yeah, man, whatever. <laughs> Glad that works for you. <laughs> you know, like, 
<laughs> oh my god that's like the perfect moment between you and me too that's that very much that encapsulates our relationship that is that is it right there uh, i remember just like that guy's weird he's cool but he's just, we, had yeah. met, we had met a handful of times before then but like never really talked that much uh but so like was there a dramatic shift in like the because i remember like that's when you guys started getting on tv and you made and you had videos and then you had that muppet video and then weezer had the muppet video oh yeah the muppet wars the Muppet Wars, yeah. <laughs> that was wild because we were on tour with Weezer. And now it's also another tour where I feel like you guys were offered it first and didn't want it. So we went, we, then they that offered was, us. Uh, that was the that was Blink, Blink, Blink and Green Day one. Yeah. Did you do that one? Yeah. But so we just, we were on tour with Weezer and um, our first video for At Your Funeral would did like really well. And like the day it debuted, MTV2 played it on the hour, every hour. And uh, and being on Vagrant, everything was really happening. They had like the ability to like really throw throw gas on that on that spark and turn it into a blaze. And so things were happening. So we were talking about making the next video. While we were on tour with Weezer, we were going to come home and, and shoot it right after the tour. So like we were brainstorming every day and pretty pretty loudly you know just excited about talking about this idea that um a couple of the dudes in the band had had where they wanted to get muppets and models and have them hang out in a bar and the muppet the the models are trying to pick up the muppets and take them home (laughs) and so like while we were just planning planning for the video we realized we couldn't afford the real muppets so we had to get monster puppets which were super awesome it was really cool to watch those puppeteers do their thing um and that was it was really fun to make but sure enough when we like when our video came out weezer had a video uh fishing gone fishing maybe i forget the name of it but they had obviously had enough money to hire the actual muppets do you think they poached the idea from you? I mean, it was like at the time it was like how could how could this it's either that it's the greatest coincidence ever like hilarious coincidence and that would be amazing or they t- 100% heard us talking about it. It is gone um, fishing, yes. Yeah. Keep fishing. Keep fishing. Keep fishing. Yeah. So like I, I don't mean, know. I'm not I'm not familiar with their later work. <laughs> but yeah, it w- it felt pretty much like pretty pretty clear that they would have like heard us talking about it and then just taken the idea and <laughs> just completely one up to you with it. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Like real just, Muppets. yeah, they, they really nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I kind of like your one better. I think ours is, is great. It was a lot of fun. Still friends with some of those Muppets, those uh, monster <laughs> puppets. <laughs> So what, like, what's going on in your, in your world and in your head during this time? Because it's like, like, you're getting getting on TV, you're getting on magazine covers. I know that you and I suffer from similar insecurities, but it's just like, oh God, what that was like, like, cause it was like, it was all happening really fast. Right. It was extremely excited. There were certain layers. Like I definitely never like seeing myself on magazines or on TV like that. And even doing the TV performances was very, very nerve wracking. Um, you know, but it was all such a thrill. So it, it was so exciting, you know, to like get to meet Conan O'Brien and get dri- driven to these late night shows and limos and, you know, it was it was gnarly. Did you tell me a story that like that was that Conan O'Brien one was when you like started 
tuning down a half step or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So, like, I we had done a TV performance before this for on Craig Kilborn, who used to be a dude that had a late-night show. Yeah. And, you know, I had been a punk rock singer for so long, but all of a sudden we're doing these performances where there's a lot more people. The PA is quite a bit better. Or if you're playing on TV, you really can't like hide behind these loud amplifiers. And um, I was also having to sing so much because we were like, you know, professional touring band now that I was really starting to deal with wear and tear on the old vocal vocal pipes. So we, I was like really nervous about, I think my voice cracked a bit on Craig Kilborn and it was like, it was, it made me feel like uncomfortable and embarrassed. So I was like, okay, the night before Conan O'Brien, I'm like, okay, guys, we got to tune down for this one. And everyone's like, okay. So we tuned down, we rehearsed and like in the loudness of the, of the rehearsal space, it felt all right, you know, but like what, one thing I didn't realize was that like my, whatever, uh, you know, level of, you know, pitch that I had become accustomed to with the songs all of a sudden was going to change. And at your funeral starts with this single note, the D note, oh, right. which is hanging in the air. And then I have to sing like a harmony on top of that without any chord. It's just a single note. So I'm not, you know, and plus, since it was in a different key, all of a sudden, I didn't have the sort of muscle memory of like where my note was supposed to be. So I do remember like when the intro started kind of feeling like lost, like, am I hitting the right note right now? <laughs> you know, and why I was like, and then I was like super worried about it afterwards. And they like, I didn't realize that they can, you can go into the like control room and like redo stuff if you play, but I didn't want to do that. No, that would be, that would be cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right. So we just waited and watched it later. And it was, it was all right. It wasn't like terrible or anything. So that's another, like, you don't always necessarily need to be too overly worried. I wish you, if you had been there, you could have talked me off the ledge because you have a, you're very good at that. I don't know. I think I can talk you off of ledges that I get on myself. Yes. You have a <laughs> particular, <laughs> particular special touch having gone through certain similar things. It's interesting too. Like I have a very, well, a couple of things. One is I have a very vivid memory of watching you on, I think it was on Conan in, in my house and like my wife and I were like specifically like tuning in to like watch you guys play. And I just had this moment of like, cause I was feeling kind of like jealous, but then happy for you. And at this, and so I was kind of had this like moment where I made like a conscious decision of that. I'm not in competition. Like I'm not, I don't want this to be a competitive thing. And so I just wanted to be happy for you. So that's just my own thing. Oh, well that's, I'm glad to hear that. The other thing is like, I don't think anybody ever talks about how weird it is to perform on television. Like I know, dude. It's like, you, it's, you come it's unnatural. Up, like, yeah. You come up playing. I mean, besides making music videos and like lip syncing in music videos, which I hate as well. Like it's probably the most awkward thing you can do as a, as a performer, but you like, you get used to like being in a band and playing in basements or whatever. And then you have that energy and then you have to go into the studio and you have to learn how to do that, which is a whole nother thing. And then you have to somehow learn how to like do it on command Right, right. And, you, and it's such a, such a rare experience. You don't really get a chance to practice. I mean, I'm sure you two's good at it now. You know, or <laughs> yeah, like they only play TV. Um, yeah, that's such a good point, though. It is very unnatural. And also, they, they have to keep the volume low enough that the, you don't damage the microphones and whatnot. And they're not set up with the PA in there. And you don't have your fans like hanging out, 
pumping you up with all the energy. Right. There's no one to feed off of. You just have, yeah. you know, tourists <laughs> who got yeah. tickets to the show. Like I still like, even it, like nowadays there's a lot of like video appearances where you're on like a website and like, I still, I just, I'm just not comfortable with it. I like playing the loud, I like playing loud music in front of people in a bar. Maybe. Maybe someday. Maybe later this year. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> But so were you feeling any pressure at all from like Vagrant specifically about like things that you guys needed to do, tours you needed to go on? Like it seems no, like you were um, just constantly on tour the whole time. Though. Yeah, no, but it was just very exciting. Like we were, everyone was excited. Everyone at the label was excited. And like all those bands that were signing to Vagrant, like there was that camaraderie, that feeling of camaraderie that we've talked about. And it just felt like this family of bands that was all like taking over the world. So there was like, I feel like, I don't know if you ever felt this, but there was a moment where it felt like we could be the biggest band in the world right now, you know? And that, that was, that was crazy. And going all, going on all those tours and doing well enough on in MTV two and whatnot. It was, that was a nutty feeling and being on magazine covers and whatnot. It definitely felt like there was a time when I felt like, holy shit, we're going to be the biggest band in the world. And that was a, that was a crazy feeling. Um, and then when we went in to make the next album, we were still on Vagrant and they never like pressured us or anything. They weren't like, you got to capitalize on this moment. You got to make stay what you are part two. You know, everybody was very excited about how the song, like there was this evolution of music and it all felt, you know, just cool to be growing and changing. And we we're going to make the record with Rob again. It I'm was a very exciting time. I'm curious about that. So f- first of all, when it, when in this point did you start working with Rich as management? Management. That's a good question. I feel like it would have been around the Vagrant tour, Vagrant America tour. So we we all felt when we were making on a wire that we weren't really getting like the, one of the things that we've that's come out of this podcast. We've really realized how good Vagrant was about being kind of hands off, creative, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just letting people make the art that they make and how that's awesome. I think we didn't know we were making such a dramatic leap. We didn't either. Right. And I, I was wondering if you had any, like, cause you did it after we did. And it was just like, did you have any, any, I mean, almost just slightly after we did, but it was just right. like, if you had any feedback either from Egan or from Kevin or from anybody of just kind of going like, this is different and you should be aware that it's different. No, not at all. Because everyone was very, I think part of the reason that there was, Vagrant was excited about Saves the Day was that every record had kept changing. Because I remember Rob Schnaff even said, like, the reason I wanted to work with you is because of how much you grew from your first album to your second album. And so there was, and I, I think some of the people involved recognized that, like, I was just a talented songwriter and they wanted to just encourage that. You know, and I think there might even have been a sense that like Saves Day isn't potentially like, you know, this commercial uh, band. They're not necessarily commercially viable, but there's something important about Saves the Day. And I think that was more of the, the spirit around the band, like that we were being taken seriously. And I think that that's cool. You know, that's because also like if anybody had ever tried to do, no one ever tried to do that with Saves the Day, you know, like get in the way and say, you really need to write more songs like this. We were really good about quality control within the band, you know, and, and there was something cool about, um, and, and something almost, you know, surprising about how much the band continued to evolve in such a short amount of time. 
So, and there was no way of knowing that, like, um, when we put out in Reverie, it wasn't going to fit the format. Like, all the major labels swarmed and wanted to spend millions of dollars to try to buy us buy us out of Vagrant and, you know, make put that album out. So, like, they all thought that this was going to be a huge record, too. And then, you know, when it... When it came out, it de- it didn't fit the format with like the radio format with Kid Rock and Limp Biscuit and whatnot. Right, right. So there's a lot of layers to this to this particular record, and like I mean, as there are to any record, but this one in particular because it's such a we you and I have talked about this a hundred times. But like, tell me any stories or fun things you remember about making the record. It kind of sounds like you you really grew creatively as a songwriter, like just in the in the craft of like writing interesting melodies and writing. Like your lyrics have always been, it have always been good. I think that that's been the case, but I think like the, the, the songs are really interesting on that record. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. post that point and like was Schnaff a big influence on that? He was just excited about it. So like a few of those songs I had written while we were making stay what you are. And he'd hear me sort of like tinkering around in the, in the uh, lounge, like sitting there with the guitar, playing little melodies on the like little keyboards lying around. And he was just really encouraging. He's like, show me what you're doing in that song. And I'd sit there and show him. And he was like, wow, it's really cool. He's just super encouraged. And right around that time when we were making Stay What You Are, like I was saying earlier, he he could tell I was stretching for things on the guitar, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So he like showed me how to make real chords, you know, not just like slap my fingers on the fret and fretboard and just like finger around for what sounds good to my ear. He's like, oh yeah, this is how you build a chord. And he basically taught me music theory while we were making Stay What You Are. That summer when I went home, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, Joe Nemiroff, who I grew up with, who was a really good jazz guitar player. And he brought his guitar over so we could jam one day. And he showed me, he could see that I was growing as a guitar player too. He's like, let me, let me show you five different jazz chords in five different positions. So it was like, you know, an hour later, like the light bulb was permanently on. (laughs) I was just so excited, you know, like, oh my God. And like that just started this basically two year journey for me, just getting deeper and deeper into music itself and, and, and the guitar. And I was just finding that, (laughs) that hippie thing I was saying where I I listen for melodies and pluck them out of the air. The melodies were becoming more and more intricate and like they just sounded so beautiful to me. And then I had so much fun bringing them to life because also at the same time, I learned all this new stuff on the guitar. And so it was like, I was able to bring the songs to life in a way that I was unable to do uh, just a year or two before being a more of a limited guitar player. And it was a really um, rich experience of my life. Even though I was young, it was a really rich experience. Uh, spiritually, I was getting very, very deep. You know, I was con- connecting to a, a level of life that I didn't even know existed before oh. having this like near death experience. And our, we, got, we got in a van van accident, really horrible van accident. Talk about that. Yeah. On tour for Through Being Cool. And we flipped and like almost died. And like the next album starts with At Your Funeral. So I'm like going from writing about missing my girlfriend to going like, what is life? You know, so, but uh, like coupled with this like incredible uh, experience of like being a kid in a candy store, like, you know, living this rock and roll dream and like having so many great friends in all these bands and we were all having this incredible experience. It was very positive. So when I was getting deeper spiritually, it was all like, um, I was like, I had my head in the clouds in a very good way. 
So that's why that that album, you know, is called In Reverie. I was like, I had nothing to be angsty about at all. Like the, all the angst was gone. And for me, it was like everything in life was, you know, like the higher power, you know, just everything. There's nothing that's not, you know, like the cosmos, you know, dressed up in a ladybug or a blade of grass, you know, like, so oh, I was bringing it in Conley. <laughs> <laughs> like, so that, that's so like, that was where I was just at the highest point in my life at that, at that time. And, uh, just so in love with life and music and everything. So one of the things that once our fans finally heard, so everybody behind the scenes was very supportive no one, and excited. No one had any, any concerns? No one had any concerns about In Reverie? No. So okay. like everyone was excited about it. Even all these major labels that were swarming and like wanted to buy. Can I ask about the major label thing? Like why, why was that? Why did you put that record on, on DreamWorks? Like what? Well, when we were, when we were finishing the record, in the studio, Rob and I were so excited about it. We both thought it was a really, really special album. And he was like, you know, we should play this for some major labels. So we did. When we started mixing the album, we, he had lots of contacts in major labels, and they basically all started coming. Like every, every major label you could imagine came while we were mixing the album to hear these songs you know, in the what as we were finishing them up, and every label was excited. We got offers from every label. The reason we liked DreamWorks was um, Rob really liked DreamWorks. Had a great relationship with Luke Wood, who was the our turned out wound up being our A and R guy over there. Um, and they were we didn't realize they were an independent label, just independently owned by billionaires. They had all these resources, <laughs> but they really appreciated artists. You know, and I I definitely took myself pretty seriously at the time. And um, I felt understood, you know, and you'd have like Lenny Warrenker walk into the room and listen to the background vocals and say it reminded him of stuff he saw Brian Wilson do. And that just, I was just like, okay, cool. Like <laughs> <laughs> he, knows what, he knows what to say to you, huh? Well, it was, but it wasn't like, um, you could tell, I don't know if you've ever met Lenny, but, um, it's an extremely genuine person. He's not like trying to, trying to no, sell, I, I didn't, sell I, you on your own bullshit. I didn't but. With, like, and smoke up your ass. I just, like, <laughs> of course, like the ultimate compliment for you. Yeah, it was. And they, they understood like the Beatles vibe that was going on. Um, I was like obsessed with the Beatles and, um, you know, like I was tra changing a lot as an artist and they were super into it. And we just had amazing like dinners with these legends of the industry. And they tell us stories about like signing Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and stuff. And that's the music I grew up loving. So that's why we went with DreamWorks. And um, Vagrant kept the rights for the vinyl. So the album was actually put out by DreamWorks and Vagrant. Why, so, not, why not just stay with Vagrant at that point? Well, because it was like we had this feeling like we could be the biggest band in the world. And oh. now we're ready for this major label thing. And they all get it. They get what we're doing, you know, and uh, we could be a band that's like taken seriously. And we felt heard and understood and supported. And they reflected that in the deal. And it was just like, OK, this is definitely the next move. We had just been on tour with Weezer, Green, Green Day, Blink-182, playing TV. And it just felt like the next step. And Rich was very supportive of it. Rich was our manager, you know, and we, we made the album for Vagrant. Um, but then he also felt like 
you know what, this feels like the right move and DreamWorks feels like the right place. And he had a great, he had a great relationship with Jimmy Iovine at the time. We, and we hung out with Jimmy a few times and we really liked him as well. But so a month after the album came out, David Geffen sold the label to Universal. We wound up with Jimmy Iovine and, and his team over there. Um, but we were super, f- I was phased out already at this point. And <laughs> we just asked to get out of our contract. And that was kind of the end of that chapter for Saves the Day. Let's talk about the release of In Reverie. The thing about it is, and this is my own observation, because I think that you and I had similar character arcs, for lack of a better term, of, of going from being a punk rock, a guy in a punk rock band who wrote songs to trying to be an actual like songwriter, songwriter. And I think the world wasn't ready for either of us to do that. And yeah. I feel like for whatever reason, everyone took took it on your end real personally. <laughs> I feel like they, <laughs> yeah. they yeah. all kind of had this like, and it's kind of interesting to me because like, even when we've, you and I have toured together with like our friends and other bands or whatever, more than a lot of bands from our scene, People have a certain ownership that they feel of Saves the Day more than, and I don't know if it's an East Coast thing or if it's just, you know, but it's like everyone has an opinion about what you're going to do as an artist. But for some reason, I don't know how to, how to describe it. Like they, I just see it in our interactions when people just like feel they can like be shitty to you <laughs> about stuff or like. So that was actually really, that was really hard to experience in, in real time when it, when it happened. Cause the thing that pe- most people that didn't like that album at the time were bummed about was that my voice was pretty drastically different. And that's, that's a direct flex reflection of the fact that I, I wasn't feeling angst. So I, you know, so I was in a, a more mature position to reflect on life. I wasn't like a teenage kid, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of the people that were fans of the bands were younger than, and I had gone through a near death experience and lots of psychedelics at the time. So <laughs> <laughs> I was just on a different level and it's also it's not a common experience um so it's can be hard for people that are going through normal life to relate to that but um I also didn't I didn't have since I didn't have those normal human feelings of like anger frustration it was sadness and like longing to be closer to god so like that's right, I remember I remember are, doing those are that? common I mean those are common relatable themes like why why well, it's it's also rarefied air. It's not like that's not what they're talking about in popular culture. I guess you know. Um, and it like it's not it's not. I'm not saying that this is like special. I'm just saying like the reason that people didn't connect to it was that my voice was different. And no, I don't think anybody would have. They people at the time were like, "Why did you change your voice?" And for me, I was like, "Wait, I'm just. This is how I'm singing these songs. You know, I don't. You know, and I'm singing about wanting to be connected to like the universal source of life. You know, like I'm more like singing sad songs out into the under the stars. You know, I'm not like angry. And I still have people say like, "I miss the angst," and I'm like, "I don't know what to tell you." Like, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I'm, I feel better. I'm re- I'm sorry, you don't feel better, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, there's there's numbers you can call, people people can help. Like, <laughs> um, so that, yeah, in hindsight, that's what I understand stand happened there. Because like, if I, if I sang some, of, it's hard to sing those songs from that place because they're not written from frustration. So much the audience often thinks that everything's a calculation instead of an emotion. 
Yeah. Right. Right. We got a lot of that people. And a lot of the, like what I realized too, in hindsight was that from the outside, people saw us on DreamWorks and thought they changed. They, they made this album for a major label, having no, like not knowing at all that we made the album for Vagrant. And it wasn't until the last two weeks of mixing when these major labels swooped in and they were fucking psyched, you know, like there was like an atmosphere that we were making an important album. And then I'll just, I'll never forget like the week that it came out, Luke Wood was so bummed. He was like, we, I know we all love this album. You guys made an incredible album, but all, and the, but the radio programmers are saying, we love Saves the Day. We can't wait to hear the next album. This is the week it came out though. We can't wait to hear the next album, but like this, this just doesn't fit the format. You know, it's, it sounds weird coming after Limp Biscuit. Oh, yeah. You know, so it was like, that was, it's like zoomed, zoomed out way into the future. It's, it's all just very interesting to me. But at the time, it was soul crushing. I guess I didn't fully realize how invested you guys were in radio. Yeah. Like, well, cause, that's never yeah. been like a big part of our thing, you know? Right. Right. Not it for was lack of trying just because we never got on the radio. Yeah. It was happening for, for us on Stay What You Are. And I remember like the, the summer it came out, came out almost two months exactly before September 11th. And Rich and and everybody at Vagrant was so excited because our single at your funeral was that summer. It was the most added song. Oh no! Uh, to, to radio, after, what's that? Did it get pulled after September 11th? Yeah, so it was the most added song that summer to radio playlists. And then September 11th happened, and they had to pull it. Um, another very interesting thing, though, this is a this was just a wild realization was that when it was getting added to radio playlists so much, you'd hear it on the radio sometimes, and they would censor the first line is uh, about getting high in the back room. The first like, and they would censor, they would they would bleep out getting high, right? But Afro Man at the exact same time had his song because I got high, and that was also <laughs> also, and they didn't censor him saying hi once, and he says hi like fifty nine times in that song. So I just thought like this is just some weird shit. Yeah, that's a that's a weird distinction to make. So the the whole business was becoming more transparent to me and like at the time i did feel pretty angsty about that you know but but also now in hindsight i'm like i fully get it. it's just an industry you know for these people that you know they're just they just have to move units and sell products but the reason that certain things get bleeped and don't get bleeped when we put our next album out back on vagrant one of the songs called head for the hills got picked for madden 2006 the <laughs> john john madden but that was weird because i didn't i don't think i cursed once in the song but if you listen to it on the game like half the lyrics are bleeped out <laughs> but it's only because it's super depressing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they bleep song. it out because it's so dark remember <laughs> that's some good shit that's some good shit i remember i got to so i got to play a new am song on on letterman one time yeah and i say god damn in the song and they're like you can't say god damn and I'm wow like, they're like you can say god or damn wow it, what did you do I just said, damn, I just kind of took a, Oh like, my God. Kind of and it That's was just, nuts. It was just so, and then it's like blink One Eight Two has a hit single called, uh, yeah. yeah, damn it. <laughs> Whatever, just like very, yeah. very arbitrary. It is. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, they don't want us to look too closely into what's going on there. So I have to, I have to say, as far as like the, the fallout with In Reverie, like personally, when I first heard that record, I was like, this is awesome. Like, I was just like, oh, thanks, dude. I was just like, see, that's all, I, that's all I need. I'm not trying to butter your bread or anything. I'm just like, I, I remember like, 
I mean, I guess I am, but like just kind of going like, oh, this is a cool sounding. And I didn't get the backlash. Like I was kind of like, I don't get what everyone's so pissed well, on. That, yeah. And that, that means a lot to me. Cause like, that's, uh, you know, that album was made for like serious music lovers, not just casual fans, you know? But, um, I remember right. Like the first week that radio, the radio, um, programmers are saying it doesn't fit the format. One of the things was, uh, Luke Wood at, uh, at DreamWorks, who was our A&R guy. He was like, you know, do you, they're just saying, you know, the, you're, the way that you're singing doesn't fit like, you know, when Limp Biscuit they're like screaming and Kid Rock, he's like screaming, you know, and they're saying like, if you could go back and sing it the way that you used to sing, you know, they could probably, they could get these songs on the radio. And I talked to Rob after that conversation, I was like, Luke was talking about like redoing the vocals. And he's like, yeah. And he's just like, well, how do you feel about the record? We, you know, we both felt great when we were making it, you know, do you still feel the same way? And I was like, I fucking love it. You know, and he's like, me too. So just keep your eye on the ball, you know? And I was like, I can't go back and read, like, that's not how I feel, you know? Like, if I'm, if I'm going to go back in there and... Well, and it's such a music industry, like, note, you know what I mean? Like, to be like, oh, this is what we need to do to fix it. And it, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, like, sing, it, sing it angry. Yeah, well, that's that's true. You and you and I both know what it, the moment would have passed already by the time that was finished. But, but also, I was, you know, thinking about that. I was like, no, because, like, I put so much heart and soul into the performances on that album like I was singing I sang those songs the way I wanted to sing those songs that's how I felt um, but that yeah it's all very interesting and I know a lot of bands you and I both know would have done that they would have gone back and recorded whatever the label wants and they would have you know, regretted whenever. it they would have gone in and recorded something they didn't like yeah and, and f- yeah and fans can see through that too like nowadays it's pretty gratifying. A lot of Saves Today fans really love In Reverie. Um, but like if I had gone back and redone it, there's no way that that album would have had any lasting power because it would have been fake. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about like, do, it's like, do you want to try something creative and be true to yourself? Or do you want to do the same thing over again and be disingenuous and then that yeah. set off everybody's bullshit detector? Right. And and the one of the the awesome things for Saves Today is it's not like it ended our career. You know, we were mm-hmm. able to go back to Vegas and we're able to make records the way we want to make them and we're very fortunate to be able to work with labels like Vagrant and Equal Vision where we're we're just still supported it doesn't matter how many units we get we push but I remember, um, you know, so like I, I would have had to just like, you know, go to go back to school or whatever. But fortunately, I get to still do what I love. But I remember this feeling of like, I was like, thank God the people in the industry understand saves the day. And we're not we don't have to like, you know, call it quits. But I do remember feeling this um, a tremendous amount of resentment toward people that don't make music criticizing it, <laughs> you know? Cause I'm like, okay, like where I, I say this, I say this all the time, but like, where's your record? You know, like, why don't you hear it? Open up your mouth and sing for me. You know, <laughs> why don't you get up on stage in front of a thousand people and play and sing this well with your, with your heart. So anyway, that was, that was all pretty interesting that was somewhat sustaining too just from having that realization like these people don't make music they have no idea what they're talking about and they could be fucking cruel about it too 
Yeah, they really can. They, they, they like people just walk right up to me when I got off the bus and be like, "Your voice changed," you know. And like, I do not have a thick skin, so like that—that's when the band saw me getting so depressed. Like I could barely come out of my bunk on the on the bus and go play the show, like barely. And I would climb right back in there, so depressed, so that they actually had. It was an incredible moment. Like I was pissed off at the time, but they had this intervention, and they were like. You know, we're not, we can't, we can't have the band anymore unless you go get help. And they found this Buddhist therapist in my town. Um, like they researched, they looked it up. They're like, we found this guy. You're going to love him. We've talked to him. He gets it. And they were like, you have to go see him or we're not going to be a band anymore. And so I was super pissed off at that at the time, but it wound up completely changing my life. And I'm so grateful that they did it. Like I never would have been like, I'm going to go to therapy. I just would have been like, fuck this. Everything sucks. <laughs> that is so wonderful and beautiful and perfect. Just full disclosure, we wound up through that whole process, we wound up going to group therapy as the band. Really? Yeah, dude. We did. And the Metallica movie had just come out. I know. Because they like Metallica. <laughs> the Metallica movie had just come out. So it was such a fucking joke to me because what, what I found out when we went to therapy, you know, I, I have to understand, like put myself in their shoes. Like I get it. But one of the big reasons they were so worried about me is they're like, oh, he's going to stop writing songs. We're not oh, going to. Like, yeah, no, like, no, <laughs> like my, <laughs> This is like uh, my my job is in, is is un, I'm uncertain of my future. Like so, there was a little bit of like you know milking the cash cow back to life. Yeah, it wasn't completely altruistic on their part. Like, they, no, no, and I, I don't I don't still I'm still grateful. And they're like a they were like you know some of them really had my best intentions at heart, and that was that was nice. But it was a very isolating experience as well. Do you think those guys took it as hard as you did? The oh no, definitely not, because they didn't write any of it. You know, people weren't being mean towards you know Evan D'Amico's all... amazing baselines. Yeah, it was all it was all straight on you, huh? Oh yeah, definitely. I think it was tough for Pete Parada because Pete had this unfortunate trend when he joined Face to Face right when they oh, made right. their <laughs> right when they made their record that the fans hated, and like his first tour with Face to Face, people were like spitting on them and then he got and then he joined saves the day we're like poised to be one of the biggest bands in the world we make that record and he was just like dope yeah no and that but i'm so glad pete was in the band because pete really loved all those songs like that we had worked on and then when he was he moved to chico and we worked on songs together just me and him in my garage as i was sort of coming back to life and he really helped me rebuild my confidence because he would hear these little songs i was working on he's like dude that's awesome um let's dem you know let's work on the demo and he was there to help me he like nursed me back to life and pete pete's a really he's a really great human being he's fucking such a good drummer mm-hmm yeah. Is, I want to read you a quote that is attributed to you from your Wikipedia page and tell me what you think of this. It says, DreamWorks Records completely abandoned it three days after it was released, saying we made the wrong record. Then they were sold a month later. They were worthless. Do you agree wow. with that? No, I didn't say that. You didn't say that? No, that doesn't sound like me. That's why I was bringing it up. <laughs> 
that's uncharacteristically harsh on your Yeah, I understood what was going on for them. You know, Luke was awesome. Luke Woods, our A&R guy, and everyone at that label, they were amazing. They're really like talented, creative people. And their their whole company is about helping artists to, you know, bring their dreams to life. And um, I felt, we felt very supported by them, you know, and the whole thing was just very eye-opening because it's like, oh, this is an industry. It's a business, you know, and Luke, Luke was very, um, he was nurturing as well and helped walk us through all that and understand like why it didn't fit the the format and right. and all you know all this stuff and he was still supportive of of the band and me as a songwriter you know and they were all like very um understanding when we wanted to just sort of retreat and not be on a label and they helped us get out of the contract we didn't we weren't slashed like 90 percent of the dreamworks roster when we went wound up on universal but they were incredibly gracious and let let us out of the contract and so we were able to come back to chico and uh, i was able to come back to chico and i found a house where i could build a studio so you know so now i could just do it the way i want to do it it was an it was a wild experience but the dreamworks like they the people at dreamworks and universal like basically you know bought my, paid for my house and studio like they set me up to be able to make music the way i want to make music and if they didn't care about me you know they would have just like left us in the lurch but no, they were they were incredibly kind and sweet about all of that. You know, and it, that cost them a lot of money. They had to, you know, fulfill the contracts and everything, and they did it. It was amazing. So at that point, did you guys just kind of be like, okay, we're just going to stick with, go back to Vagrant and do that? Or was it like, let's look for a new label or... I didn't think about anything for about a year and a half. And I was, I was also just about to become a father. And I was like really, really depressed and pissed off. Not, not about becoming a father. It was the one thing that was <laughs> bringing, bringing me back to life. You know, Luella really like getting to be her dad is like puts things in perspective. But basically I had to kind of like retreat from everything. This is a funny story. Cause like I left the world of music. And when I finally came back in 2005, MySpace had happened in the interim. Everything was about like, if you have the right haircut or <laughs> the right t-shirt, you're going to, and the right profile pick, you'll have 300,000 friends lined up to buy your debut album that goes gold. And, but anyway, I, I'd like retreated back to, to Chico and um, I was just going to therapy and like I had to really bring myself slowly back to life. So it was a lot of like waking up and going to the going to the park. So we were talking about that earlier. Like seriously, like a, a dose of nature puts everything in perspective. Um, so that I was just nursing myself back to life. And there was a long time where I was very critical of every last song that I would write because I had like the this... I had just like this crippling experience with so many critics. Yeah, you know, every, everybody was, a, was probably shot. Yeah, yeah. So that's why Pete was so great because he would hear like a little riff that it came up with. He's like, dude, that's fucking awesome. Like, let's go work on that. Where I might think like, it sucks. It's worthless. I hate everything that I'm, I'm writing. But Pete actually bought me this book that really helped called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. So good. It's really good when you're struggling to get things out for sure. Yeah, and it's like, there's a, surprising amount of heart and soul in that because it's not just about writing and so it was like the perfect time pete got me that book and then and then that really helped there was lots of uh lots of stuff i learned from that book that i still use to this day but but then like once 
I realized, oh yeah, okay, I could still just write my songs and make my music. And you know, there was a sense that at some point we will will have it. We will have an album to show to labels. We hadn't put that. We hadn't put that first. We were since we had just um, we, we. I found this house where I could build a studio. Basically, we realized well we can make a record right here without anybody's money. We don't have to like fly to L.A. and you know book time anywhere. We can make the record right here so we didn't have to even think about that which was awesome and then that's when i met jesse and we got to work with steve again and steve was the one that had the idea like i was about to luella's mom and i were about to become new parents and steve came to visit and hang out for like a couple days and like hear the jams and everything and talk about making a record and he was like you know what let's why don't let's just make it right we hadn't finished making the studio here he was like we could make this work let's just make this the album right here and so uh he and jesse came out and helped us make this record and get the studio more more set up and more more built Ma- and mailed, mailed a bunch of my equipment from new jersey via ups with a lot of insurance <laughs> that's so cool that, that couldn't have been cheap jesus christ steve drove up from LA. We both did, yeah. I flew and met him and we drove up, yeah. Yeah, and you guys brought Wes Borland's mix. Yeah, we, had, we talked about this with... Yeah, we like made that album on Wes Borland's console and it was very like by the seat of our pants too. Like the studio was still like a shell of a studio. The big thing I remember at that record though was the level of enthusiasm towards the material. I think I've very rarely been in a room where everybody's loving the songs as much as we loved on that record. Yeah, that was so effing fun. And I really have to thank uh, you and Steve for for that and and Pete because you guys were so enthusiastic and like I that's all I needed at that time. Like I could give a fuck what anybody that didn't play guitar, you know, like <laughs> said about my songs. But everybody that I respected was was eager and excited. And then that's also how we met Manny oh, yeah. Herrera because we needed a bass player midway through that album. And Steve had just been working with Manny on something. It was, uh, we had done this record that never came out because of Cue the Laughs, Jordan Schur. <laughs> Every fucking interview. <laughs> called Chase Pagan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Chase. I remember Chase. Yeah, Manny had played bass in the Chase Pagan record. And so he was on the mind. And Yeah, uh, and 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 uh, Steve knew exactly the kind of bass player that I was hoping to have in the band. And Manny was absolutely perfect. Oh, my God. And His that bass was like, on that, that record was just, is amazing. Oh, he's just crazy. That was, a, that was a dream come true, getting to make that record. And then that's also how I knew that like everything was going to be okay. Because before that, first four Saves the Day records all made in a very traditional manner in these proper studios. And nowadays, you don't think twice about home home studios like almost everyone is making a record in their in their bedroom nowadays but back then it was a pretty big leap but thankfully we had jesse and steve to be like okay let's get this done in the right way we could we can make an incredible sounding record right here out out back so love these guys jordan sure was this record label executive who was a plague on our scene during these years i think he's the guy who signed limp biscuit you'll learn more about him in future episodes Picture a music industry guy in a tracksuit. That's him. What's so funny is now all of a sudden when that album came out, I was pissed off about shit again. <laughs> <And> so, 
people were like, oh, they, they resold out. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's just writing songs. He's just trying to write songs the way Saves the Day sounded before. And then that that pissed me off, too. Maybe that was their, their grand plan. If they could make you angry enough, they could get the angst back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> if they just hurt, hurt you enough, then oh, you'll be in enough pain to like... Oh, God. Off. Gaslight Nation. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so, that was that was really that was that was a great experience. So the 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 trio of records, right? Are they all? Yeah. Are they all on Vagrant? No, I think the first two are on Vagrant, and then we put the third one out with Razor and Tie. Hey, who's Razor and Tie? A short-lived label. It was like a indie, I, like a mid mid-level sort of bigger bigger indie label out of New York City. Started off as a, which was relevant to the Vagrant story, as a offshoot of Caroline Records. Started off as, and then they had a big hit with the first big brand new record. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's how, and that's how that all wound up. And it was like years that that whole process took years. It was I think it was like the first album came out in 2006 and then Daybreak, the last one came out in 2011. So that was a long, long time. Well, I was going to say, do you think that there was like, because you kind of had the concept for those records all being sort of interconnected, like from the beginning, right? Yeah, I didn't know what was happening through me, but there was this when after Pete gave me that book, Bird by Bird, I had this explosion of creativity and I wrote 86 songs in nine. 90 days. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. And, but it like exploded out of this sort of subconscious block yeah. of like depression. Uh, there was a lot of, but just built up emotion. And I was just having the time of my life though, re- like just bringing those songs to life. And I had like a renewed relationship with the guitar where I had learned a lot of stuff about the guitar, but was able to use the smart chords when I wanted to, but it didn't all have to be over the top. I relate to that very much. Yeah, and that was really fun. And then I was back to like making my own chords as well. And there was this mixture of caring so much and not caring at all. And that was really comfortable because I was in like extreme, like intensive therapy as well. I was coming into contact with like layers of my psyche that had been buried since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was writing about all of these uh, like subconscious emotions. And the way that I learned to write creative writing in school was stream of consciousness. So it was like coupled with this like intensive deep dive of the, the therapy. And I'd also learned to meditate, uncovering a lot of emotions and letting them just come through the pen on their own. Just like bo- just books, journals, just filled like books and books and books of lyrics and then I would go back and like underline stuff that I could pull out and use in songs so the whole writing experience was happening again this hippie thing like very much on its own and I was just having fun connecting all the dots the first song I wrote for that was actually a song that was on it's the second to last song on the second album under the boards and then some of the songs on daybreak were some of the some of the first songs I wrote for the whole project wound up being on the third album daybreak when I sort of like understood why I was so fucked up I'd done the deep dive realized I needed I really needed to change and then was able to reflect on like how I how I got to be the way I was um, and I was able to reflect from a more mature point of view by the end of all that so it's really interesting like people that are really really struggling like with some like emotional turmoil connect to those records which 
I understand. Cause like I was at the lowest point, but I was, I was determined to pull myself out of it. I think the first couple songs on under the boards, whenever I'm really emotionally fucked up, that's a turn to those few f- first few yeah. songs type yeah. of thing. like very consistently at rough moments of my oh, life. Thank you for saying that. That one was so, I was so dark at that time that for years, that one was really, really hard for me to revisit. But uh, last year I listened to it for the first time in like, a long time and I fucking loved it because um, I, I remember it feeling like I was almost too vulnerable um, but going back to it now I was really glad that I, I went for it you know it's like it's like that time capsule thing but also it's like the uh, the fearless aspect of being able to be vulnerable on a record is I was proud of it side note Jay Russell of Hot Rod Circuit actually played bass during pre-production for Sound the Alarm before Manny joined the band here's Steve Evitz I mean, the Sound of the Alarm thing was great because it was like the great experiment too because like at that point, I had all my gear was was portable and I would it was all in road cases so I would set up a studio wherever and that was the idea. Chris wanted, they took their advance for Sound the Alarm and they built out Chris had a guest house in his ha- uh, in his property, and uh, it was like a full on guest house with a garage and you know and everything. So they built, they turned the garage into the live room. The one bedroom was the control room. They built a window. They, they he spent they spent like a good amount of money on building out the house and making it a, a studio. So then I wheeled all my gear in there, and you know we set up and we had to rent some some mics from a, a company in Nashville that would you know ship out mic works or whatever they were called i think i had to mail my equipment ups you mailed your equipment ups right my stuff came on a truck with a rocket cargo and then we borrowed the flickinger desk from west borland we borrowed the flickinger desk from west borland that's right it was uh we had this old he had this old console from a company called flickinger that was based out of detroit and it was originally from uh tom schultz from boston's home studio so the first boston record was actually was actually recorded partially on this desk so <laughs> the pedigree of the gear you worked on on the saves the day record was through Boston via Limp Biscuit to, <laughs> to essentially. Well, it was Boston via West Borland. It was at that point West wasn't in. Wasn't was he? St- no, no, he was in Limp Biscuit because we oh, just no, got done doing the record. We just got done with the record, right? You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. But yes, that's, yeah, that's basically wild. Boston, Boston via Limp Biscuit. Oh, I, I have to, I have to backpedal. I have to retcon one thing really quick. Go backwards. Add one more layer to the to the uh, the gear. Okay. Boston Limp Biscuit Skrillex because it came from working on the from first to last record directly from that studio to. <laughs> To, yeah. to, to Chico. So it's just so, like every every gamut. Of so yeah, every the, the singer from right, Sonny, the singer from first to last, became Skrillex, and so yeah, yeah. It, it, it went through Skrillex too. So it's <laughs> <laughs> so classic rock, new metal, dubstep. So, but the, I mean, I, that sounds like it was t- it's like a it was like a, a positive experience all around, right? Like it's just basically hanging out in Chris's backyard and making a record. It was awesome. We Jess, Jesse and I, we they rented us an apartment. We, oh, <laughs> dude, remember? <laughs> it was all it was me, you, and Manny. Me, you, and Jay Russell, because. So I guess since we are we are kind of specifically talking about Vagrant, like what was the the vibe coming back there? Oh, it's the best. It was the best. It was like washing up on shore. Like the label had changed by that point. It had changed, but it just felt like 
like we were back home, you know, and it felt like we'd had this like crazy whirlwind experience of what a major label is and what, it, you know, to try to do that dance and, and earnestly, you know, like we were like, this is our shot. Let's give it a whirl. And, uh, but it was very much like coming, coming home from war or something. I mean, I don't, I, I use that analogy in a respectful manner. Yes. Um, but it was like, it was a relief. And then it was like, okay, so this is how we're going to make records from now on. And it was as if we just got to go back to the trajectory that we had been on if if that opportunity of maybe being the biggest band in the world hadn't presented itself. And we were just like an indie band, you know, and we get to make our, our records we have our fan base and like, that's it. I'm just gonna, like we're just going to, we're just going to exist down here. Very comfortable place to be. You know, I like- know I'm, I've, I'm so grateful, you know, I'm so incredibly grateful. And that's why I work really hard to try to make the most of the continued opportunities, you know, cause I, I feel so lucky to get to do it on our own terms and to be supported by really wonderful people in the, in the business people that understand saves the day and, you know, let us or even help us be, be the band that we can be, even though it's not like, we're not like big business band. You're big business to me, bud. Thanks, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, so when we put out sound the alarm, that was the first time that we ever did the full warp tour. So we went on, we went out for warp tour 2006, summer 2006 and I had so much fun on that tour. We had only done like two weeks of it in Texas in 2000. And that was fun, but we were in a van. So we'd have to like show up at 8 a.m. and sit in a parking lot with no air conditioning. And that was that was just, uh, that was the, a grueling haul. But so then 2006, we were on a tour bus and did the whole thing. And that summer, all the bands were super preachy about the war. Um, like every band had some like long-winded diatribe on stage, you know, like, so they, you'd only get half an hour. They'd play like two songs and the rest of it, they'd be talking about George Bush and Dick Cheney and stuff. Huh. So I remember being asked every interview, like, why aren't you talking about the war? And, <laughs> and I, I was just like talking about how like, well, my, you know, my, my struggle is to uh, like help people with their inner life. Um, and that was like, I was, that was my thing. I was, we went out there, we played a thousand songs and, and put it all into the music and I had nothing to say about the war. Um, but then it was also interesting because this was my first experience with like the MySpace generation of music. And that was wild. Like, I don't know if you remember becoming aware of MySpace and and specifically its, its effect on music, but I remember very clearly that it was like a before and after. Hmm. And like all these bands, it was so scene oriented. So it's like, like I was saying, like my joke earlier, like as long as you had the right haircut, yeah. you had the swooping haircut, you know, uh, like, that's, that's when I had tapped out. Like I, yeah. I very much had been like, this is stupid. Yeah. Like, cause I, so I missed all that when I was in my like depression and writing all these songs about being depressed, we came back out and on Warp Tour and it was very obvious that like something was very different. And uh, all the bands, like all the baby bands, like they, they had this sense that they could be rock stars. Mm. 
you know, because they, I do remember. Yeah. Like overnight, it was like, it was all about how many friends you had on MySpace. And I will never forget like hearing these bands that I had never heard of before who all of a sudden had a gold album just because they have like hundreds of thousands of friends on MySpace who all went to buy the record. And this is still when people were buying albums. Um, So that was a, that was a whole thing. This is the last Um, years of that. Yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. But we, I remember the best thing on Warp Tour was that all that there were lots of bands on that tour that loved Saves the Day. And even though we, there was like no chance Saves the Day was ever going to have a gold record, but just the fact that bands liked us, like I remember Fat Mike would come up and he's like, yeah, so. For the second time uh, on Warp Tour, I was out on the golf range and I asked, who's this playing? And it was Saves the Day. <laughs> so he's like, that's so tw- I noticed your music twice and I really like it. <laughs> so like hanging out with Fat Mike and having him like Saves the Day and like the guys from Bouncing Souls liked Saves the Day. Like I was just like, fuck yes, dude. Because that was still like we were dealing with like we had when I when I went underground from the, the the pain of the In Reverie experience, we'd been poised to be like this, almost one of the biggest bands in the world. And we came back and we were just like a punk rock band again. But the fact that the bands like Saves the Day, I was just like, oh God, this this is doing it. <laughs> like, I take a lot that's all that's all I need. I, I take a lot of pride and comfort in that. Yeah. My oh God. Me too, man. Like I'm just like, oh, this is cool. Like I it, it's kind of like who's the band at the festival that the other bands are on side. Yeah. Exactly. I I feel I just got emo goosebumps because <laughs> I really do feel proud of that that too. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a that was a cool experience. And it was also it it was nourishing, you know, after the experience that we went through within Reverie. That was very nourishing to my soul. Yeah, I was gonna say like when you go into Under the Boards, because you like wrote all these songs for these three, like, did you kind of like go into Under the Boards just kind of be like, I know what I'm doing. Like, we're just going. Yeah, yeah, definitely. By that planned kind of. By that point, I started to understand like where, like, so I'd wrote, I'd written 86 songs in 90 days, just in a whirlwind. And it was very much like I had to come up for it for air just to remember what day of the week it was. But so we made it sound the alarm and I knew that there were songs that I really, really loved that I had just written that didn't fit the group of songs on sound the alarm. And I could feel where the arc, the emotional arc was leading. And I knew that it was going to stretch out into a third album because I was putting together the songs for the second for under the boards. And some of my favorite songs that I had written weren't, didn't fit in that group. And so that's like, at that point, I knew exactly what was going on in terms of the lyrical arc. And I had uh, this rad chart that I was making where I'd printed out all the lyrics from Sound the Alarm and the lyrics I was working on for Under the Boards and where they were going to go onto the third album. And I didn't, I'm not sure if I knew that was going to be called Daybreak yet, but I did know that I was in, that we were talking about Manny that played on Sound the Alarm and Under the Boards is a big Star Wars fan. And he really got it. He was like, okay, so we're making Empire Strikes Back right now. Basically, <laughs> like that was the vibe of Under the Boards was very Empire Strikes Back because it's like the darkest part of the Star Wars saga. Luke is fucked up and but he's like learning how to rebuild you know and come back stronger and so Manny really understood the cinematic 
aspect of at least the emotion we were trying to capture. So, and everybody was on board. And we had Daraja, the drummer that uh, he had played with in Glassjaw um, on that album. And so we had a cool little unit. It was just me and David Soloway playing guitar and then Manny and Daraja. And they were a unit from Glassjaw. So they had really good chemistry. And those songs were super dark. And so there is a little bit of that East Coast energy that both of them had mm-hmm. that, that really matched well on that album. And at that point, I think maybe Steve was busy again. And But we had had so much experience making records at that point. We realized, you know, let's just, we're going to use our two uh, closest um, friends that are these incredible engineers and producers in their own right, Eric Stenman and Mark Hudson, who they were uh, our front of, Mark Hudson was our front of house engineer at touring and Eric Stenman was our tour manager. And he also did like our in-ear monitors and everything. And those two dudes make amazing records. So at that point, we just thought, hey, will you guys co-produce this album? Uh, And we had the studio and we were getting better and better equipment for the studio. And so it was the second record we made here. So we were comfortable in that that aspect. And I was in a much better place emotionally. So I was like digging myself out of that dark hole. So we had so much fun making that record. And we actually made a whole making of documentary that if you bought the CD, you could, it was like a feature length documentary making that album. So people can really be like a fly on the wall while that was happening. We had tons of fun. I think that record sounds really good too. I think Mark and Eric did an incredible job on that record. And so we were also like a little bit more familiar with the space of the studio. And and it was it was fun. And I was already working on the, the songs for the third part of that trilogy and having just really cool musical epiphanies. And so for me as a song, Songwriter, I was just having the time of my life. And I was writing about these weird, just archetypes of the unconscious, archetypes of the subconscious, unconscious. Was very, I was very much into the Joseph Campbell mm-hmm. and Carl Jung stuff. And I knew that what I was experiencing in my meditations was there were mythological elements to the universal experience of being human. And just bringing, bringing those up and connecting the dots as, as a lyricist was really fun. I think also like the reaction to that album, a lot of bands I know like that record, but also a lot of people that are going through those tough times. <laughs> that record might honestly make you feel a little bit less alone. Um, so I remember that. It was very dark. Mood of the album was very dark, but I felt good. And I think the only, you know, the only tour we did, I think, for that record, proper tour for Under the Boards was an acoustic tour. I remember when you guys did that. Yeah. And that was really fun to like reinterpret some of the other songs as like an older person. So songs that I that had been written 10 years before we were playing on acoustic guitar. And that was cool because it was this realization that I still connected to all the songs that I wrote even if, when I was 17. And that came out in 2007. So the band turned 10 in 2007. And we were way deep into our career and being supported by Vagrant and the musicians that we knew and loved to just con- you know keep going, keep doing it. So that was it was cool. We were about to make Daybreak and that was just like, that was a creative peak for me. It was a really high time. It was awesome. Why... Did Daybreak not come out on Vagrant? Why did the switch to? I think just like the length of the contract was two was two records. Oh, okay. And we had met. We were working with new management and had met the people from Razor and Tide. Just a good fit at the time. I remember hearing about them. I don't. I don't think I ever interacted with them. Yeah, they also did the uh, kids kids Bop albums. 
this is probably the most philosophical we're going to get on this podcast. And if you've ever talked to Conley, it's inevitable that we will talk about Joseph Campbell. He's the guy who wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces and popularized the concept of the hero's journey, which if you want a simplification is Luke Skywalker's story arc. Buy me a pint sometime and I'll tell you about it. I think it's interesting, and I know that you're you're familiar, uh, more than passingly familiar with Joseph Campbell and like Ugh. talking about like your your hero's journey, as it were, of that like I think a lot of people in bands who had that pie in the sky, like we have, and maybe even had the opportunity to be like, Oh, we could be the biggest band in the world right now. But then to like lose that in such Mm -hmm. a like traumatic way to then to be able to recover from that is really like, I don't think a lot of people could, could do it. No, it's, you see it really messes people up. Like even like rivers Cuomo is brushed with that. Like, I don't know if he has recovered, you know, it's like, he doesn't allow himself to be openly vulnerable anymore. You know, there's like a, a, but I, I do. And then you see some bands, they just have to walk away. Yeah. They literally don't come back. I just can't do this job. Yeah. It's hard to do that in front of people. And then also with like, if they're not your, if they're not your peers and they have opinions on it, um, a lot, that's like, I don't let myself be too available online because like, I don't want to hear people's opinions if I don't respect their point of view. It's interesting, like that. Like we both have our our defense mechanisms, and my my defense mechanism in that regard is is basically summed up by like, no, fuck you. Like it just, you know, it just yeah, like that's, I get really like angry. That is, about yeah, stuff. that is literally why I'm not on there because that's my feeling too. You know, I'm just right. like, fuck you. <laughs> Let me. Let's hear your song, chump. <laughs> you know, like, show me what you got. You sounded like a Lip Biscuit song here, Chris. Stan, where was that? Where was that in 2003? <laughs> Arg. <laughs> that fucking radio thing is so wild to, and weird to me. So it, funny. It, it's just like, because I, then I, I saw it like when Carabo was going through that shit. And then I saw yeah. it a little bit when Rob was in Spoon. And it's just like flying into play. Like, he'd have to like, I can't do get kids this weekend because I got to go fly to do something with spoon and i'm like why <laughs> i just kind of like it's like it's a radio show you you got it you know you got it yeah it. you got it you got to do it if you're fortunate enough to be added on those things you know and it's also really fucking cool you fly to phoenix arizona and play a show with system of a down like sure <laughs> yeah that sounds great <laughs> I don't know. It's I really like, I just, I love it. I mean, one of the wildest ones wasn't a radio show, but it was, I don't know if you guys did bamboozled this year, but uh, it was, no, not this year. Uh, well this year that I'm thinking of, we, it was on one of the main stages. The final three acts were MC hammer saves the day and muse. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and then fuck. across the way when, uh, when muse finished Snoop Dogg went on, like, nice. That kind of environment of radio shows is really cool. I don't know that I agree. I think radio shows are corny, but I'm glad Chris finds joy in them. Whatever it is, I hope he figures it out. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. On our next episode, we'll begin to tell the story of Senses Fail, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.